Hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us. This is a ministry of Hickory Ridge Community Church right here in beautiful Chesapeake, Virginia. So glad that you are joining me today. Hey, listen, today is part three of Treasures in Cracked Pots. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter four. We're going to discover why we are different as followers of Christ. When you think about what God expects from us once we are born again, uh, He expects us to rescue the perishing. Did you know that drowning people can't cry for help? According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, every day in the United States, about 10 people die from unintentional drowning. Drowning ranks fifth among the leading causes of unintentional injury death in the United States but there's at least one huge misconception about drowning. Many people assume that a drowning person will splash and will yell and will wave for help. I mean, wouldn't you? And isn't that what's often portrayed on movies and and in television? Actually, drowning, however, is far from obvious. A report from the Journal of U.S. Coast Guard Search and Rescue has identified the instinctive drowning responses. When someone is drowning, the person will instinctively display these character traits. Except in very rare cases, drowning people are physically unable to call for help. That's because we're designed to breathe first and then speak later. Now, if you don't believe this is true, most people, before they speak, take a breath and then they speak. Try speaking at the end of your breath, after you have exhaled, and see how that works for you. You see, drowning people cannot yell, scream for help, because they can't speak. Drowning people can't even stay above the water long enough for them to exhale and inhale and call for help. Here's another characteristic of a person who's drowning. They can't wait for help. They are forced to extend their arms laterally and press down on the waters to get up to the surface, and they can't do it. Drowning people cannot voluntarily move toward a rescuer or reach out for a piece of rescue equipment. You see, unless rescued by a trained lifeguard, drowning people can only struggle on the surface of the water for 20 to 60 seconds before sinking. See, the Coast Guard emphasizes that the instinctive drowning responses is triggered by a host of automatic nervous system responses. In other words, it's completely involuntary, unlearned, and unavoidable. When I think about people who don't know Christ, they're blinded. They're not screaming for help. They're not crying out, waving their hands, asking us to rescue them. They don't realize they are blinded and they are drowning. We have been given this wonderful job of sharing the gospel with them. There are three questions that we're trying to answer in today's study. What makes us devoted? What makes us devoted to follow Christ? It is the mercy of God and the forgiveness that he has given us. And we are devoted to him because he's given us this wonderful ministry. You know, one of the ways that you know you've been born again, you tell somebody about it. You can't help but tell somebody about it. Do you remember when you were first saved? You had no inhibitions about you. You shared the gospel wherever you went. 
And as you look back, some of those tactics that you used may have been a little harsh and maybe a little bit offensive, but you didn't know any better. You were just so excited that you were rescued, that you were redeemed, you were forgiven, and you wanted the whole world to see and know that you had been forgiven. That's what makes us devoted, the mercy of God. When Paul talks about this treasure in crackpots, he's talking about the gospel. Christ taking up residence within us, the good news of our redemption. Well, what makes us different is our faith. Paul talks about in this chapter that we have a different faith, that spirit of faith. And he's talking about that is what drives us, even though we are being pressured on every side, we're not crushed even though we're perplexed. Listen, when I look at our world today, it is perplexing to me how we can be so far from the truth. But you know what? It doesn't drive me to despair because my hope doesn't come from those who don't know Christ. My hope doesn't even come from those who know Christ. My hope comes from Christ. That is my faith is in Him. Paul says we are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. In other words, Pressure may be on us, and we may feel alone, but Jesus is right there with us every step of the way. We are struck down, he says, but we're not destroyed. And all those people are coming against us. But you know, you are invincible until the good Lord's done with you. That's right. So keep on sharing. Keep on getting back up because God has a message that he wants you to share with those that you know. And then we learn thirdly, and that's what we want to cover in today's broadcast. We learned that our future is promising. So Paul says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I want you to know that our troubles are temporary. Verse 17 talks about their light, momentary troubles, but they're achieving something in eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, to help us understand this, I think it's important as we are going through times of trouble. You know, I think about how different people respond to trouble. On one hand, some may say, well, I'm having trouble right now because God is punishing me. And that's why I'm going through this difficulty in my life right now. Now, there is a law of sowing and reaping. Every time you embrace a lie, a good lie has an element of truth to it, but its main foundation is false. You are going through difficult times, not because of your personal sin. Paul says these are momentary, they are light troubles. You can't just say God's judging me every time something happens because bad things often happen to good people. So sometimes the trouble that we're going through has nothing to do with the sins that we've committed. You probably know this is true because I think about the most harmful things that have happened, have happened to me that I really didn't deserve. So keep that in perspective. So that's one angle. That's a false angle. The other angle is, well, just pretend this is not a real problem that you're existing in. Pretend it doesn't happen, right? You can escape from it, right? Just eat, drink, and be merry. Pretend you don't have these troubles and they'll go away. Well, that doesn't help either because they're real. What do Christians do to navigate through difficult times? We know that they're light, they're momentary, so we look at the eternal glory that far outweighs them. And in the process, we give thanks. 
In the fall of 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued two major statements, two landmark statements. Now, the first one is very famous. It's called the Gettysburg Address. And this is where Lincoln commemorated the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, the other statement, made just weeks before that, may be a bit more surprising. On October 3, 1863, President Lincoln instituted the first official Thanksgiving holiday. Now, you think this is crazy, right? But wait a minute, Mr. Lincoln. Uh, We are right in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, We still have another two years before we would see their surrendering take place in Appomattox, Virginia. Uh, We're two years out. We're in the height of the worst war that we've ever fought as Americans. Brothers against brothers. Families against families. States against states. Unbelievable, terrible war that we faced as a nation. But Lincoln wrote, It has seemed to me fit and proper that the gracious gifts of the Most High should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. Thus, Lincoln set apart the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our benevolent Father. You see, apparently, in the midst of the worst war our nation has ever seen, Lincoln thought it was a great time and that we were ripe to be filled with gratitude. And now we may be tempted to think that Lincoln's statement of gratitude was inappropriate, maybe even naive or offensive. But as you read the entire text of Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation, we discover that he concluded that in the middle of war, we should be giving thanks. Lincoln candidly addressed the horrors of the Civil War. He says it is a war unequaled in magnitude and severity. It had been a war that had transformed tens of thousands of Americans into widows and into orphans and mourners or sufferers. And he says this is the lament of the Civil War strife. But he coupled this hardship with hope, recognizing the hand of God guiding him through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, conflict and gratitude, hardship and hope. He wasn't confused. He was seeing thanksgiving through a biblical lens. You see, I want you to know, our future is promising. We're being constantly renewed day by day by the Spirit of God that lives within us. That's what makes us different. And so as a result of today's message, is there something that you've decided not to quit on? Maybe you've decided, I can't quit on this marriage. There's a ray of hope in this marriage, and I got to keep staying there. You know, many years ago, they had couples who were contemplating divorce. I think there was 30 of them. They put these couples together, and they said, now listen, I know you're contemplating divorce, but would you do something? Would you, for the next five years, hold off on your divorce? And for the next five years, would you work on your marriage, pretend that you really do love each other, act like you were in love like the day that you got married? And at the end of this five years, if you no longer want to be together, then go ahead and proceed with your divorce. 
Well, these 30 couples agreed to take this little uh, test, and for five years, they pretended they loved each other. Did you know at the end of that five years, only one out of those 30 couples decided to get divorced? You see, they discovered by because they stuck together, uh, there was hope for that marriage. You see, too many times we quit too early. Oftentimes we quit on Monday and God wanted to bless the socks off us on Tuesday, but we just quit a little bit too early. How about the church that you're attending right now? Maybe you're thinking about quitting, giving up. Maybe you see no hope. You see only problems in that church. You know, every church is a problem church. Every pastor is a problem pastor. Every member is a problem member. Why? Because we're all highly flawed. We are all crackpots, but God puts us together and is a treasure that is within us. So hang in there. God is blessing you in a tremendous way, even though you can't quite see it just yet. Just hang in there. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, that pastor that I have to endure listening to every week, he's not that great of a communicator. He pours me to tears. He keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Well, listen, maybe the reason he keeps repeating the same thing over and over again is because you haven't learned the lesson quite yet. And maybe God has caused you to pray for your pastor. I had a guy one time to me, uh, came to me, he was a deacon at this church. He said, now, I don't know what to do with our pastor. Uh, we need to get rid of him, and he won't leave. He, he, he's, he's obstinate. I said, have you ever prayed for your pastor fervently? He said, well, I don't pray for him as much as I should. I said, why don't you spend 30 days praying fervently for your pastor? Pray that he'll be a better communicator. Pray that he'll have a vision for your church. Pray that he'll lead that congregation with love and grace. And I want you to know that prayer will be answered one way or another. God may not change that pastor, but he might. What will probably happen is God will change your view of that pastor. And furthermore, as you pray for your pastor, he's going to become a better communicator. And I half-heartedly said to him in a joking way, I said, now listen, if you pray for your pastor to be a better preacher, God will bless that prayer. As a matter of fact, God will bless him to become a better preacher and to do such a great job preaching that another congregation is going to come and he's going to grab right out from your church. Listen, God will answer your prayer. Just hang in there. Don't lose heart. Listen, maybe you feel that way with your marriage. Maybe you feel that way with your church. Maybe you feel that way with the job that you have. You feel like, I got a dead-end job right now. I don't know what to do with this job. Well, keep working. I have a brother-in-law that I love dearly. He trains people in the company that he works with, and uh, does an amazing job of recruiting people and, and training people and, and preparing people for promotion. And one of the things he told me one day as I was talking to him, I thought it was an unbelievable insight. He says, I tell people when they come along, he says, if you want to be promoted, this is what you got to do. You got to dress for the position you want, not the position that you have. You've got to think like the person that's in the position that you want not like the person who's in the position that you have. You've got to work like you want to be in that position, not working for the position you already have. And as a result of that, he sees people constantly being promoted because they see beyond themselves. They see the next step. They don't get frustrated because they're in that particular job. They look for the opportunities that are placed before them instead of the obstacles that are placed before them. So as a result of today's message, I would encourage you, don't quit. You may think about it from time to time. Don't dwell on it and don't do it. Keep hanging in there. When I was going through college, I would get so discouraged at the beginning of a semester. I never liked to study too much, and I knew that it'd be a long semester. But every beginning of the semester, the president of the school would always stand up, and he would remind us, you know, 
You can do anything for 16 weeks. Just keep on hanging in there. I reckon I can hang in there for another 16 weeks and get through one semester and hang in there for another 16 weeks and get through another semester. And lo and behold, you add enough of those semesters together and you will be walking that aisle as a graduate. So don't quit. Hang in there. Uh, Maybe you're listening to me today and you said, man, I don't have a whole lot of resources. Uh, I'm kind of uh, of down on my luck. I I want you to think about the hope that God has for you. Maybe you're feeling poor. You know, a while back, there was an article that appeared in a Kentucky newspaper. And it read, I used to think I was poor. Then they told me I wasn't poor. I wasn't needy. Then they told me I was self-defeating to think of myself as needy, that I was culturally deprived. Then they told me deprived was a bad image, that I was underprivileged. Then they told me that underprivileged was overused, that I was disadvantaged. I still don't have a dime, but I have a good vocabulary. Uh, Maybe that's what you feel today. Well, I want to give you some hope, okay? Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 deals with an issue that frustrates many people in our world. It's the issue of unfairness, that things just aren't always right and aren't always fair in this life. Look what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4, 1. And I was reflecting on this truth of rightness and fairness. And he says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and the oppressed have no comforter. And now inside each one of us is an inner voice that tells us all things should be fair. That's why we have referees in sports games, and that's why we have judges in courtrooms. We have this innate sense of right and wrong, and we serve the God of the universe who tells us there is a right and there is a wrong. But then we see oppression, and we see tragedy, and we see sorrow. And inside of us, there's an inner voice that says, that is just not right. This shouldn't be happening. How can we possibly fix this great injustice in life? Well, there's two conflicting truths about life's unfairness that drives us nuts, right? The first truth is, no matter how hard we try to fix it, we're never going to fix the problem. Life is always going to be unfair. For example, Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you. Poverty will never be completely eliminated, but we can make a difference in the lives of a few. So Jesus gives us this wonderful story in Luke chapter 16. Now, I believe this is a true story, right? Some would put this in the category of a parable, but there's too many indicators that this is a real story because we have real names and we have real places. So Jesus in Luke chapter 16 says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and in fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or or Abraham's bosom. The, The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away. When Lazarus was by his side, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And said Lazarus, just to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted. And here you are in agony. Now, Jesus spoke a lot about hell. I think I found 31 instances of Jesus speaking about hell. As a matter of fact, he spoke more about hell than he did about money, more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus spoke often about hell because he didn't want anybody to end up there. As a matter of fact, he said that hell was never originally designed for human occupancy. He says it was designed for the devil and his angels. So hell had to be expanded to occupy those who reject the free gift of salvation. Now, why is this rich man, in this story that Jesus shared, why is the rich man not sharing anything with Lazarus? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, but I personally think he was thinking, why doesn't that guy go out and get a job or something, right? Uh, The rich man's looking down on the poor man. Uh, Maybe he's thinking that, you know, he's always out there every day asking for food, and and this is really annoying. Uh, And maybe he's thinking, well, if I give him food, it will just encourage all the other beggars to come and annoy me. And besides, we're always going to have the poor with us. So my little bit of food won't make a dent. Uh, We're not sure exactly why the rich man didn't help to provide for Lazarus. The point of the story that Jesus is giving is that we're not going to go there. Uh, Don't you go making excuses for why you don't help the poor. The rich man ignored Lazarus' hunger, ignored his need. We all know what happened. But there's a second truth. The second truth is that life is always going to be unfair. But God doesn't say it doesn't matter. He calls us to be part of fixing the problem. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. There's a story told of a man who'd seen an injustice in his city. And in frustration, he prayed to God, why aren't you doing something about this? And God's voice came to him and said, I did something. I sent you. You know, I learned something new while preparing this message. I learned that we're always going to have the poor among us. That's true. But that doesn't mean we don't do anything about it. We are to be involved in providing for the poor. Now, when Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always, he is actually quoting an Old Testament prophet, Moses, in Deuteronomy 15. He says, there will always be poor people with you in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers 
and toward the poor and the needy. Now, since there always will be poor and needy, I will always have the opportunity to help out. I can't solve all the problems of the poor, but I can help some of the problems. In Proverbs chapter 14, it says, Blessed is he who is kind to the poor, kind to the needy. Proverbs 22 says, A generous man will find himself blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. So we have so much opportunity to help those who are poor. Now, I'm out of time for the broadcast today, but I want you to join me tomorrow as we continue on this subject, Hope for the Poor. And in the meantime, if I can help you in any way, please shoot me a text, 252-267-2365. I would love to pray for you. I would love to bring your prayer concerns before our prayer team. I Just shoot me a text at 252-267-2365. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can go to our website, hrcc7.org, hickoryridgecommunitychurch.org, hrcc7.org. And there's a tab that you can give toward our ministry. Thank you so much for listening. Join me tomorrow as we continue on this subject, Hope for the Poor. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.